0: I'd like to begin this evening's talk with uh, a virtual (laughs) few moments of sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract the Buddha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver accompanied by the words What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? where and how you are. Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and the cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability and an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these Factors of mind and heart, perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was and Mara was defeated never again to have any power over the Buddha and so we sit maybe not always exactly like the Buddha but we sit we practice We sit, we walk, we practice here in retreat over a number of weeks, maybe for some of you, months, and all of you, all of us, have practiced and will most likely, again, practice intensively in other places, at other times, alone, and with others our aspirations and determinations are often clearly and strongly felt and known. Although sometimes they pale and sometimes may even be forgotten in the unfolding of our busy lives. But certainly for many of us, more often than not, there are woven into the constitution, the very constitution of our lives. And so as we do practice over the years through this lifetime, the particular qualities of mind, of heart, that were so perfectly matured, unfabrigated, and unprompted at that amazing point in time all perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree. As we practice, these capacities of mind and heart continue to grow, continue to deepen and develop, continue to mature and be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually that this happens if we keep practicing. This evening I'd like to touch into and explore one of these qualities or factors of mind. The quality or the factor of mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being a most essential factor of liberation. We'll look into mindfulness from two particular perspectives. That of our direct experience and our cultivation or prompting of this quality in our ongoing practice. And the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings. as it develops and as it really begins to take root in us. And we'll also touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence, as an aspect of the mind, the heart, of non-clinging, as an aspect of the liberated mind, the liberated heart, The Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being like a precious gem, and that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, really the very conditions that we have here at the Forest Refuge supporting our practice. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which from my own experience is facilitated by what we might, we might call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. And in support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So taking just a moment now to relax from head to toe and bring some mindful awareness to that relaxing from head to toe, dropping into the body with a bright attention, relaxed, and at the same time, brightly alert, letting the whole body, mind, and heart relax into directly and simply hearing. So this factor of mindfulness, the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness, I uh, often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment, and in fact the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. And with its establishment and blossoming, it's the factor that offers us the greatest protection. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. And when I first uh, read this, I thought, oh, I think of it as the mother, he thinks of it as the chief. Maybe kind of a female, male way of thinking about it. So I put it together and decided that mindfulness is the chief mother. In Pali the word for mindfulness is sati, sometimes translated as memory or to remember to remember to reconnect to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind attention directed to the present moment I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia. Years ago, in a a Dhamma discussion with some friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is this just this much, absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind, what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness being receptive to what is, without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or various ideas of how we think it is, or should be, or could be. And as Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it, and moving from innocence to innocence. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to the truth, sometimes appearing so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The mindfulness that the Buddha instructs us towards asks us to not remain resting in our old habits. To not remain resting in a kind of inertia. But to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy. To come close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't float or skim along the surface of things. It connects with and goes right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed or sticky kind of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough to know it. It's this flavor that allows a penetrating investigation and clear comprehension of whatever it is it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, it's a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. Mindfulness doesn't think, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. The moment we think that I'm doing this, we become self-conscious. And we're creating or recreating a sense of self again. Again, creating a, separa- a separation or a disconnection from the reality of how it is. Separating our self out of the truth of the way of things. Again creating the duality of it and me. And living in an idea. The idea of I, the idea of me. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action, living in the present moment's experience. So in a sense, we forget our self. We lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic, not the magic that is created by magicians who create an illusion and then pull us into that illusion, pull us into that delusion. The sometimes seeming magic and beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without it we're bound, we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And then again caught in our reactivity to these assumed, these not clearly seen appearances. And we suffer unnecessarily in this believed unreality. If we don't know what mindfulness is, We're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, moving light. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And so I'd like to spend some time now exploring these four domains or establishments. Our first domain is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's feelings or ideas or concerns or emotions about it. And, of course, there are many and varied aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. One of our primary orientations to the body through our practice is mindfulness of breathing, as all of us are aware of. And I have to say, because I think there's some misunderstanding about this, Breath as an object of mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction or a beginner's way of practicing. The understanding that's accessible via this mode of mindfulness is potentially profound In making the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the in-breath and out-breath at the nose, at the nostrils, making this a basic ground of mindful attention, I have at times over the years been deeply grateful and awed actually at the depth and the breadth of what there is to be seen and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breathing happening. Let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling without any self, or with as little self as possible. Are you trying to control the breath? Noticing this without judgment, without self-recrimination. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation directly as sensations, movement, as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath, noticing it right when it begins, and staying with it all the way through to the end, maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of the breath, and the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may simply notice the in and out breathing itself, basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasing quiet, an increasing tranquility and peaceful breathing, and an all-over body-mind quieting and sense of tranquility. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, natural noticing and awareness of our bodily activity, but a close, intimate, and more constant and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting. Lying down, walking, and in all the movements of the body, getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, carrying things, even falling asleep, waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone? Is there a me? An I behind this walking, behind this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing simply be known just as standing? Sitting as just simply sitting. Walking as just simply walking. Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, sitting, standing, etc. Once uh, many years ago, my Burmese teacher, said Upandita, asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking or standing or sitting or any, any bodily sensations? And for uh, a brief moment, I was a kind of caught by the question, which in retrospect, I think was a kind of test of my practice uh, at that time. But very quickly, there was a spontaneous reflection and then a very uh, spontaneous response to Saido. No, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm directly connected and mindfully, mindful, mindfully aware of walking or sitting or with whatever phenomena is happening. a question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful attention of the body in the body, we also might begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by the action. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, the energy of volition, begins, where it starts from and how it feels in the body. I don't, in some independent, mysteriously isolated way, decide to stand or sit or stay sitting or take the next step. If we act from the place of separateness, from the place of isolation, we eventually will, or very quickly actually, experience some degree of suffering. The posture and the movement of the body are just as dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger, or the sensation of coolness on the skin, or the liking or the disliking of some particular experience. Choices are made, but they're a product of the play of various conditions. The next aspect of mindfulness, of the body as a body, that the Buddha suggests, actually he doesn't um, suggest it but directs us towards it, is giving attention to the parts of the body, all 32 of them in uh, the Buddha Dharma, hair, skin, all of the various organs. In our case here, most likely the parts of the body make themselves known to us, such as uh, the stomach, the bladder, maybe the liver, the gallbladder, the heart, the lungs. I have no doubt that we, in fact, do notice many parts of our body during retreat practice. But how often do we notice them in a mindful way? How identified are we with the hair on our head? Or the lack of it? Or the hair on our body, for instance? How do we attend to the experiences of our stomach? Or our colon? Or the digestive processes therein, or to a moment or many moments of the experience of the heart. How do we experience moments in relationship to the skin? This bag of skin that holds all the contents of the body. How often do we experience our nails, teeth, saliva, sweat or any part of our body or bodily experience with what I like to call an extraordinary quality of mindful attention? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of feelings, ideas, concerns, and emotions about it. Just the body as a body. And this is from the Buddha, Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally. He or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other matter, any other form. Our human form is of the same elements as any other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, potentially a kind of non-ordinary way to cut through the I am identification. And we might touch directly into this, not conceptually, but directly, through seeing and knowing the experiences, for instance, of a sense of denseness, or solidity, or hardness, or softness, or heaviness, or lightness. Or through mindful attention to the cohesion and flow of the experiences of the body and in the movements of the body. Or maybe through the experiences of heat and cold in a very direct and intimate way. Or maybe in the connection to the experience of distension or rising or filling with the in-breath and falling or emptying with the out-breath. How intimately, how mindfully connected are we to these kinds of experiences in our body? last instruction from the Buddha (coughs) in relation to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Maybe seemingly not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting like this. But there are many actually and various kinds of corpses around to observe. Insects, maybe, birds maybe, and even the corpses of plants, trees, flowers that are long gone at this point, all forms of life are mortal. All forms of life are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose. So it's possible to observe this directly in some ways. I've been in retreat at various times and in various places and quite purposefully observed the process of roses and grasses, observed the process of them dying and going through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod where we'd rented a house for a couple of months to practice together, I had the um, great good fortune, probably good fortune only in some circles, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. And every day for a month I walked down to that body. And I sat with it for a while, noticing the process of decomposition and decay which in this particular instance was happening very quickly as it was being helped along by the birds who found the seal's flesh to be very delicious food. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. Every living form is mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Our own form and that of others. For many of us, our attachment is so strong That most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and an attachment to the forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or simply to familiar forms. And what I think is actually strange and amazing is that we go on thinking and acting as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which, if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, intimately, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle, or maybe not so subtle, tension and stress in us. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be very helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress. Cutting through clinging and attachment. Cutting through this state of suffering. How do we know the body? This first foundation or establishment of mindfulness. Through a clear, connected attention to this first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, we may come to touch, if only even just for a moment, the end of suffering. Our heart and mind opening in an unimaginable way to the experience of ease, peace, and well-being, which really is just simply our natural human potential, our natural human possibility. It's through our own direct experience that we come to understand the true nature of things. Not through imagining, hoping for, philosophizing about, or believing in. It can be helpful to check in now and then and see if we're really practicing in ways that are truly moving us towards the realization, the spiritual realization of the qualities of metta, compassion, and wisdom, understanding. Practice that is subtly or more or overtly rooted in wrong ideas, misconceptions, or misperceptions, can become deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along the way of our practice for many, many years. A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? So moving along now to the second establishment or the second domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings. This foundation of mindfulness is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes through the sense doors, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thought, provides some specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through the contact of the sense doors with all of the various phenomena that comes through these doors. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are simply classified into three groupings. Pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings or neutral feelings. And as I've already mentioned, these Feelings arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment to the sense world is a result that follows along directly from these feelings. For instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to a physical or mental contact with some object, For most people, there's an almost immediate emotional attachment to the feeling, or to the object, or to both. And when the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, there's a desire to get it back, or to get another one. So craving arises, or a state of dissatisfaction arises, or both of these arise, very quickly usually. And our sense of well-being, our peace, is lost. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation. There's a kind of inner restlessness a stress at that point, not a feeling of pleasantness anymore. When we experience an unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental stimuli, contact with some object, most of us almost immediately experience Emotional dislike, aversion in some way, maybe fear, or boredom, hatred, anger, or disappointment. We want to get rid of it, or get away from the object, get away from the feeling, get rid of the feeling, or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. Again, we're experiencing stress. When the feeling is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, when it's neutral, often the tendency is to ignore what's going on, not connecting to the present moment's experience and maybe accompanied by a subtle or maybe not so subtle subtle state of not wanting. Not wanting to see reality in that moment. Not wanting to connect with or see reality in that moment. Most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, if it's not intense, we often don't notice. You know that answer to a question on a sort of ordinary day when somebody says, so what's happening? Nothing, nothing's happening. And so again, we're craving, craving for something or experiencing the aversion of boredom, or both. Without intimate and careful, mindful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally. They have the potential power to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change, that the very same object that produced pleasant feelings in our mind within moments sometimes can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind, and vice versa. And so again, we experience attachment, clinging, and various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering, remembering, that connection that mindfulness offers, that connection to seeing things just as they are. Uh, Quite a number of years ago, when I was sitting a three-month retreat over at... uh, what we now call the Retreat Center, over at IMS. And uh, as those of you that have been over there know, there are some shelves in the back dining room where people sometimes keep a stash of things that they need or think they'll need that they won't be getting uh, from the Retreat Center. So in this particular three-month retreat, I had a small stash on one of the shelves in the back dining room. Uh, One day, uh, uh, on my stash, there was a little note from the person whose stash was next to mine. I hadn't seen the person. I didn't know who they were. But I knew it was next to mine because of the note. It was offering me some green tea from this stash next to mine. Very pleasant feeling arose. First and foremost, because I was being noticed. Someone left me a note, and then I like green tea, so that was pleasant also. So I wrote a note back and said, thank you, I'll, I'll take some, thank you very much. The next day there was another note on top of my stash again. This time, same person offering me a hat. <laughs> Uh, It was getting cold outside in the fall. This person noticed I'd been going outside without a hat. (coughs) Well, it wasn't such a pleasant feeling with that second note. I uh, felt impinged upon. kind of thought went through my mind, if I need a hat, I'll put one on. I have one. I didn't like the attention very much, that second note. But I answered the note very politely. The next day there was a third note, and the question it was a practice question, and a very decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in me, and a very quick, unmindful reaction in the mind to write back a not very polite note. (laughs) But fortunately, um, mindfulness and discernment kicked in quickly enough, and I didn't write back a nasty note. I didn't write back any note. I just simply relaxed, let go, and didn't respond. And the notes stopped coming, no more notes. At the end of the retreat, uh, that person and I had a brief conversation, and um, he said he'd gone through a similar process of turmoil (laughs) and was very grateful that I didn't respond after the third note because he felt like then he didn't have to write any more notes. So changing, changing uh, pleasant and unpleasant with very similar experience. As I think you probably all would agree with, when we feel pleasant and unpleasant as a result of contact with some sense door object, The pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object nor is it within the internal object of attention, for instance such as a bodily sensation. The feeling is in the mind. So why do we feel this way? In my three-month retreat story, The feeling and the subsequent action were clearly coming from a place of self, of me. When we begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are within us, that we ourselves are really mainly responsible for the feelings that we experience. We begin to know that we in fact can't blame others for the way we feel. What for many of us are habituated storylines such as, he made me angry, or she made me feel terrible, or he made me feel so happy, or this place, these people make me feel miserable or make me feel wonderful. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings as they arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, putting the blame on others, for our feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. The potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachments, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that we can, in moments, just see the phenomena. Know the attendant feelings and that, just be that, pulling out the thread of self, the I like, I want, I need, I must have, and just simply, directly, and clearly see the phenomena and know its attendant feeling. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind are not disturbed. It's a moment of ease, a moment of peace. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing the insight into the cause of suffering, because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or push away, avoid, or ignore the unpleasant? Learning to mindfully observe a feeling with more balance, more equanimity, and thus less attachment, aversion, and identification is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So the second establishment of mindfulness, contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. This is a long Dharma talk. (laughs) Mindfulness has the capacity to connect directly and simply with consciousness or knowing itself. what we could call the bare awareness of our experience. Sometimes we may experience just this, but at times, and really maybe quite often, the knowing of the knowing, or the simple knowing of phenomena, may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors, various states of mind. And this is the third domain, or the third foundation of mindfulness. We go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display, the marketplace of where to do walking meditation, or which shirt to put on today. In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, many people visit there um, specifically to come to the marketplace. Much, much beauty abounds there. And sometimes I've walked down the street at home looking into the shop windows, and watched my mind and watched my body, seeing, just seeing, forms, colors, bear attention. And then notice the colorations of the mind, of wanting, leaning into, And even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need. Greed coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A very good practice in the midst of the marketplace. And then the marketplace of our inner world of meditation. For instance, a moment of deep calm, and a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it, just it as it is, just tranquility, just calm. And then maybe very quickly followed by grasping, wanting it to never leave. Directly knowing this also. Directly knowing this experience also. Mindfulness can know the mental factor or the coloration in the mind of wanting, greed, within the greed itself, or the mental factor, the coloration of anger, hatred, fear, delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself, how it acts, its changing flavors, and its ending, its cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight, or sleepiness, or distractedness. As I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath or a sensation in the body, a sound, a taste, a memory, a plan, an image in the mind. The experience of knowing the knowing, knowing that consciousness itself is manifest, and seeing the moment-to-moment arising and passing away of this itself, is potentially available to be directly experienced and known with a very careful, mindful attention. And again, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is and however it is. With mindfulness itself, there's no grasping. No rejecting, no manipulation of experience. So the third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, or mindfulness of mental factors, states of mind, the colorations of consciousness, mindfulness of them in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness is called mindfulness of or contemplation of dhammas. It's sometimes called contemplation of mind objects. And this is sometimes not an easy one to understand. It can be grounded in the six sense doors, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, and thinking. Or mindfulness grounded in the five hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, agitation, doubt, or the grasping or the aversive mind. The fourth domain of mindfulness sees any of these experiences through the doors of Dhamma. And Dhamma, in this case, can be translated as the truth, the way of things, or the natural laws. So seeing any of this through the truth, through the way of things through the natural laws, the way it is. Whether experience is in the physical or in the mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness knows experience through the doors of, for instance, the Four Noble Truths. Seeing the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of any given experience. Seeing the truth of suffering. And maybe seeing the grasping, the grasping onto the passing show. So seeing and knowing the cause of suffering. And possibly connecting with and seeing and knowing the ending the cessation and the letting go, the no grasping of experience in any given moment. Seeing this, that being a moment when there's no confusion, no anguish, a moment of seeing the Dhamma, seeing the truth of the end of suffering. And then maybe followed with the experience of a very strong motivation and aspiration to continue on with a life dedicated to liberation. The truth, the Dhamma of following the Eightfold Path. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena, holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the way of things, is within everything. Simply there to be seen, simply there to be known. If we just take the time to look very carefully. The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body and mind, and within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara is nirvana or nibbana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives of samsara, if we stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, in that moment we're no longer caught by uh, ignorance, no longer caught by ignoring. And being caught up in the whirlwind of pleasant and unpleasant, I like, I don't like, no longer caught unaware in the whirl of one thing leading to another, leading to another, no longer caught in continually, unwittingly moving around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. And this is from the Buddha, rooted in careful attention. Careful attention is declared to be the chief accomplished in careful attention, with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that she or he has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred, the mass of delusion that she or he has never penetrated and sundered. And closing with a particular teaching, again, from the Buddha that um, has been slightly amended. It's an instruction from the Buddha. uh, And it's been slightly amended uh, uh, so that it can be an instruction that we can offer to ourselves. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead with insight let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. and let's sit together for just a moment. May all of the wholesome energies and fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere.